The Athletic. Listeners, you're a cosmopolitan bunch, so if you're looking for a break from all of this England euphoria or just a bit of perspective, here's the latest episode of our Euro Stories documentaries looking back on Euro 2008. You'll notice there's no England in this one because they Steve McLaren qualifying, but there is a whole lot of Rafa Honigstein, Julian Laurent, Sasha Gorinov and Alvaro Romeo. You can subscribe to this series by searching for Beyond the Headline on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. We've done each tournament since 1988 and the 2012 and 2016 episodes will be out in the build-up to the final next week. Anyway, Jimbo and co will be back on Friday night after the first two quarterfinals, so it's over to your bay and mine, Ian McIntosh. And gentlemen, and you know, the Taken ladies too, it's 2008 and across the pond it's all about Barack... Beyonce and Britney. But over here, we're setting up for a fiesta of football. The European Championships are once again held in not one, but two countries. This time, Austria and Switzerland. And if you're here to find out how England did, you're in the wrong place. They decided that their years of rampaging dominance over international football were becoming... You know what? They just didn't qualify. Petrich again. Extraordinary! It's the substitute Petrich with the deadly left foot, and Croatia have gone 3 2 up. And England are out of the European Championships. Steve McLaren, Jazz Fusion Tactics. It was all very regrettable. But look, everyone else is here, and it's four groups of four. Top two go through and knock out football all the way to the final in Vienna. So let's check out Group A where it's the Czech Republic, Portugal, Switzerland and Turkey all lined up and ready to do battle. Co-host Switzerland take on the Czech Republic in the first game, but the Czechs poop the party with a 1-0 win. Later that night, Portugal sweep aside Turkey, taking part in the first tournament since that incredible run to the World Cup semi-finals in 2002. It was a really one-sided game. Jordi Yameli is a Turkish journalist for ESPN. Maybe a lot of people did expect it. For Turkey, it still was a little bit disappointing because, yeah, Portugal was just too good. They had nothing to, to, to put in the game and it was not the start we all hoped it would be. Portugal, who seem in something of a hurry, pick up another three points four days later, beating the Czech Republic 3-1. Switzerland, meanwhile, cannot afford to lose against Turkey. And two minutes into injury time, they have the draw they need to... Su- oh, hang on. Manager Fatih Tarim has fired up Turkey and they've scored a late winner. What are the odds? He put some motivation in the guys and in the second half, yeah, around 10 minutes or something, uh, everything changed inside the game and Turkey was hungry again and they were uh, looking for, for some goals, at least one. And then, yeah, the first spark of what will be that summer was in the uh, injury time with the goal of Arda Turan. Poor old Switzerland are out of their own tournament barely a hundred hours after it started. They recover a little pride with a win over a mix-and-match Portugal in the final game, but it's too little too late. In the group's other match, a winner-takes-all affair, the Czech Republic lead Turkey 2-0 with 15 minutes to go and take their... Oh my life, what now? Well, the most important thing that happens is that the Turkish football players, they like to have an enemy. And in that game, like, you know, the Czech guys are really <laughs> decent and not re- really into the fighting. And so there came the uh, the referee. There was a moment where Emre Günger, the central defender, just before the 2-0, 
He was injured, they wanted to change him and the uh, referee delayed it for like minutes and even they, they conceded the second goal with 10 men on the field. So then that's the point when they start getting mad. And yeah, basically everything changed in the, in, the, in the eyes of the football players and in the passion that was shown. And yeah, the most lucky part was that one of the best goalkeepers of the world uh, was uh, at the start of, of, of yeah, not three, but at least two howlers from Petr Cech. Turkey win 3-2, a last-minute winner again, and they go through with Portugal. So let's take a look at Group B. Where we find the other hosts, Austria, along with Germany, Poland and Croatia. Tasty. So, can Austria outperform their eliminated co-hosts? No. They lose the opener to Croatia, courtesy of a Luka Modric penalty. Meanwhile, a Polish tabloid prepares for their team's meeting with Germany by mocking up a picture of Leo Beinhacker holding the, um, well, the severed heads of Michael Ballack and Jürgi Löw. I mean, it felt like a bit of a manufactured tabloid war because... Raphael Honigstein is the Athletics German football correspondent and the author of Das Reboot. Part of those publications were actually owned by the same publisher who were playing sort of ping pong. The German edition would say one thing and the Polish edition would react to it and vice versa. Germany, needless to say, did their talking on the pitch, beating Poland 2-0 with both goals from a Polish-born Lukas Podolski. After the disasters of 2000 and 2004, this is all refreshingly straightforward. Suddenly, uh, Euro 2008, I recall that Germany was seen as favourites, at least in Germany, to win it because the upswing in performances and in sentiment had been so remarkable. And that feeling of goodwill and euphoria that existed in, in Germany in connection with the World Cup, but more specifically about the German national team, that still very much prevailed in 2008. And there were parties and everyone thought it's going to be just as exciting with Germany doing really well. They've also got a new manager in the form of Jürgen Klinsmann's former assistant, although his appointment was a little underwhelming. Well, Joachim Löw was a bit of a surprise decision because people felt he was an assistant and he would not quite have the, the charisma, the stature, the history as well to lead this national team. On the one hand, it had been a tradition in the German FA for assistants to get promoted, but it didn't strike many people as the most natural of appointments because... He didn't feel like the sort of larger-than-life figure that you might have expected as a national manager. But I think very quickly it became apparent that he'd been the brains behind the Klinsmann operation all along in footballing terms, that he had done all of the tactical preparations, all the detailed work. Klinsmann was the, the figurehead, the trailblazer, but behind the scenes, Löw was the one really helping the team perform. Unfortunately, this new sense of calm lasts only one game. Four days later, they're beaten by Croatia. We remembered them back from 1998 when we brushed them aside in the quarterfinals. Juraj Vidoliak is a Croatian football reporter. Germany were really brushed aside. They, they really didn't look as if they had any chance of getting anything out of that game. And it was a big statement win when... You know, people were, as I said, very optimistic even ahead of the tournament in 2008. But that win against Germany really helped people believe that 
this team, although it was very young, it was more than capable of getting a big, big result. And, um, you know, going 2-0 up uh, in a way where they couldn't really, you know, we, we didn't let them breathe, basically. So it was a huge win. I remember the game really well because Germany had a suffered sort of a tactical breakdown in this game. Uh, Croatia scored through uh, Dario They scored again through Ivica Olic. And everything that Germany did looked static, looked labored. They couldn't really get going. It was a big moment because it felt as if the 4-4-2 system that Germany had been playing, which was very much modeled on Premier League teams, funnily enough, was becoming a little bit predictable and easy to work out for slightly sophisticated, more sophisticated teams, certainly more technical teams, and Croatia easily picked the holes in that system. And it wasn't quite the death knell for the system, but there was a reason why it was then dropped later for the knockout rounds, because it was beginning to to look a little bit uh, unstable. Meanwhile, Avika Vastic's 93rd minute penalty keeps Austria in the tournament, just when he salvages a point against Poland. And that means Austria must beat Germany to qualify. And they do not beat Germany. It was certainly a pressurised situation. You know, the Austrians playing in their own tournament, playing to hurt their big neighbours, having all the incentives necessary to, to get a result and, and make sure that Germany don't get out of the group. They, they really made life very, very difficult. Germany created almost no chances in this game. But the game will forever be known for the amazing free kick for Michael Balak, who just by sheer you know, willpower and, and fantastic technique and power just manages to, to, to shoot and beat Jürgen Macho in goal. Croatia topped that group after beating Poland in their final game. Germany joined them in the next round. And we're off to Group C, better known as... The Group of Death. Romania. France were World Cup finalists under manager Ramon Domenech in 2006, so he must be a decent coach, right? Ramon Domenech actually didn't really play a big part in what happened in, in 2006. No. Oh. Um, Julien Laurent is a French football writer, part of the Totally Football Show. He actually has no real, no real talent in terms of managing a football team like this and certainly no input in what France could do well in this tournament and it, it pretty be pretty much going to be a disaster. They were fortunate enough to start their tournament against the group Minos, Romania. And what followed was not a classic. That start was not good. It was not a good feeling to draw nil-nil against that Romanian team. It's not so much the draw because I guess it can happen. It's the first game of a big tournament. You, you certainly don't want to lose it. But there was just nothing in that performance at all. And yet somehow worse was to come. But not before the Dutch got their campaign up and running and took out the knees of the Italians in doing so. So Italy are world champions uh, from 2006, but Marcello Lippi uh, is no longer in charge. He has resigned triumphantly. James Horncastle is the Athletics' Italian football correspondent. Has retired unofficially to the Tuscan Riviera 
Via Reggio, where you can find him. If you just go down to the marina, he's there on his boat, puffing on one of his cigars. And his shadow looms very large over his successor, Roberto Donadoni. The warm-up to the tournament wasn't that great for the Dutch, but as soon as the tournament started, it was like it, like, it was like they were enchanted almost. Elko Born is a Dutch football writer. The team just started playing really, really well straight off the bat. Ruud van Nistelrooy and Wesley Schneider put them in front, but it's an open game. Italy had their chances as well uh, with uh, Di Natale and Luca Toni. And I suppose, you know, this game also has Christian Panucci's role within it. Panucci, who is moved to centre-back after Materazzi has a terrible first half and is off the pitch uh, when Van Nistelrooy scores. But because he is still the last man, Van Nistelrooy is onside, even though he, uh, he, he, he appears to be miles offside to everybody else. And Donadoni doesn't make any changes at half-time, waits 10 minutes, it's too late. And uh, Italy suffer their biggest defeat uh, at a European Championship, at least for another four years. <laughs> Buffon apologises to the nation. Uh, he says it's the worst game that he's been involved in for Italy in his 12 years playing uh, playing for the Azzurri. Suddenly you've got this team full of talented players, which all, people already know, but playing well together as well. Suddenly you've got players like Van der Vaart and Wesley Schneider, two attacking-minded midfielders just <clears throat> clicking and just doing so well together and just showing stuff that people were not expecting of this team at all, just straight away. Uh, suddenly it was, like a, it was like a perfect thunderstorm in these games. And that storm continued to rage. Were France ready for what was coming? The gap between the two teams in that first half, it's just unreal. Uh-oh. They're so much better than us. There's nothing we... There, there's just... No, in our game, there's nothing. There's not... We can't do three passes together. It's, it's, it's almost embarrassing. Thierry Henry scored at some point to make it 2-1. And... But you don't... You know you know they, they can't even come back. They, they, there's no belief in there because we know how superior the Dutch are and they will end up winning 4-1. And I think where, where it gets even worse is that after that game, in the dressing room, there's this big clash between Claude Makelele and Karim Benzema. Like, like huge, like they have to be separated. And Makelele rarely loses his chisel, but on that day, on that afternoon, I remember it was really hot as well. He loses his chisel completely with Benzema. The, the thing is, the hopes that we had that these, the, the two generations who were so far apart, the older guards, and the, and the new boys would blend and would create this amazing team spirit where they would all go in the same direction, all this talent together, experience and youth to make this French team really good because potentially there was something there. And yeah, it all exploded already. Two games in the competition. I think we've been there seven days or eight days and already it was all going pear-shaped. They were fighting with each other. They were shouting at each other. It was just a complete mess. I have rarely seen the Netherlands play as well as they did in a game against France in my life. It was just, it was like everything just clicked together. It was everything you hoped for as a Dutch fan. It was players like Van der Vaart and Wesley Snyder and Ruud van Nistelrooy just 
clicking so well together, just coming up with ideas and solutions on the pitch that we hadn't seen for years from the Netherlands, that we never saw in 2006 during the World Cup, that we didn't see in the warm-up. And all of a the sudden, they were capable of anything, it seemed. Schneider! Schneider! Back to Italy then. Can they recover? Remember, it is just Romania. You have Italy just making mistakes, particularly in in the Romania game. Uh, Gianluca Zambrotta, who'd actually played quite well, tries to play a pass back with his head uh, to Buffon. And little does he know that uh, Adrian Mutu, who uh, had made his name in Italy, of course, and would would very much be a, a big part in Serie A in, in those years, steals in behind him and, and puts puts the ball beyond Gigi. But, you know, Punucci, who I, I mentioned had been maybe not at fault, but maybe not aware of the rules in, in, the, in the first game, gets them back level. The issue is that they still need Gigi, Superman, the number one of number ones, to keep them in the tournament with the save that he makes uh, from a penalty given away by Panucci <laughs> again on uh, on poor Mutu and uh, Mutu is is disconsolate afterwards in tears needs uh, needs an arm around the shoulder but uh, Italy at that point are still alive just in the final game the Dutch wrap up a clean sweep of the group becoming the first and only team to beat those apparent minnows Romania that leaves Italy and France to duke it out for the final spot in the knockouts this Italian match could not have gone worse from almost the first minute because Ribéry gets a really nasty injury after 10 minutes. So so basically, our best player is, is out. Abidal gets sent off after 24 minutes and gives away a penalty. So you're one man down, Ribéry down, a goal down because Pirlo, I think, scores the penalty. And then there's no way back. So the next hour, we're there in the stands just saying like, well, Planning, planning our way back home. We know it's not going to happen. The players on the pitch know it's not going to happen. It's, it's, the wor- it's, the, it's the weirdest hour I've witnessed as a football journalist. All of a sudden, a momentum begins to pick up behind uh, Donadoni. Um, De Rossi hits a free kick from like, I don't know, 350 yards. Uh, it gets deflected and goes in. deviazione! <laughs> And uh, Italy find themselves qualifying as runners-up behind the perfect Dutch. And uh, and all of a sudden, maybe, maybe, maybe for the first time since 68, they can win this thing. After all, they are world champions. Wow. So uh, Italy are through and France are out. They haven't won a single game. They've only scored a single goal. I guess that Ramon Dominic has no option but to gracefully resign. So we get this phone call from my editor in Paris saying, you will never guess what Dominic just did. Live on TV, in that flash interview, he just proposed to his girlfriend, Estelle Denis, who at the time, and still is, like a big like a big presenter on French television. And we were like, what? What did he do? J'ai qu'un seul projet, c'est d'épouser Estelle. Donc c'est aujourd'hui que je lui demande, vraiment. Je sais que c'est difficile, mais c'est dans ces moments-là qu'on a besoin de tout le monde, et moi j'ai besoin d'elle. Instead of 
saying sorry to all the fans that have watched, all the sponsors, all the people, everyone around that team who believed in him and believed in his players. Instead of apologizing, instead of saying, you know, we're sorry, things went wrong, we should have done this better, that better, we're going to learn from it and we're going to go again in 2010 and do better. What that idiot says is, oh, I just want to propose to my girlfriend, I love you, I can't wait to... What, what is this? I mean, the, the WTF factor got even even bigger than what it was a day before or a few hours before. I mean, we had that team of clowns who just ridiculed themselves after not winning a single game. Not even It's not just even winning and not playing well at all, not for five minutes in the tournament. It was just like something like you could not write it up. It was something that felt completely made up it was it was not real life it was not possible it was just such a nightmare from start to finish such a mess such a shambles everything whatever word you want to use it that was that was us the french in 08 and i think that that interview from dominic right at the end just sums it up completely it was a wtf french masterclass from start to finish and that's not the last madness we'll see from the french and dominic but for that I recommend a search for World Cup 2010. Over in Group D, alongside Sweden, Russia and uh, their reigning champions Greece, we have Spain. And there's something different about Spain this year under manager Luis Aragonés. I think that the difference between Spain in 2006, 2004, 2002 and then 2008 is the fact that Spain for the first time they had a style. Alvaro Romeo was a Spanish football journalist and part of the Totally Football Show. Luis Aragonés, uh, he understood very quickly that uh, Spain couldn't play the way some other national teams were playing with physique, with pace, with speed and uh, he looked at his squad and he, and he saw that he got five or six very technical players and that it would be a real shame to leave any of them on the bench. He basically made a massive bet, which was counter-cultural at the time. I'm going to play with these short guys who happen to play very good football because Spanish players, and I'm quoting him, don't have a strong physical condition. He said that before the Euro. And that was something that didn't look good at the beginning because, uh, you know, everything seemed to be winning with the strong players, like, for example, Manchester United, uh, the Champions League that year, with Cristiano Ronaldo, Tevez, Rooney, all the speed, the speed, the speed. And Spain just uh, started playing differently. And it worked very well because at least there was a belief of the manager and of the players in this very peculiar style. They're up against the Russians, and it is a brutal one-sided affair. Spain not only beat Russia, but they thrust them with two strikers, something that Spain doesn't use a lot historically, with David Villa and Fernando Torres up front. With David Villa scoring a hat-trick, Fernando Torres being the provider in one of the goals, uh, Tess Fabregas just coming out of the bench and uh, doing his addition as well with a great assist for David Villa. And generally speaking, the reaction was very good and David Villa's goals helped silence those critics who say that Raúl should have been included in the squad. Because let's don't forget that at the time, Raúl was still 30 years old. He was the captain of Real Madrid. But there's a good reason for Russia's weakness. And it all goes back to that night when England got done in the rain at Wembley. As England were losing, Russia managed to win 1-0 in Andorra. It should have been more. Sasha Gurionov is a Russian football journalist and part of the Totally Football Show. And they lost an emo- a very important player in that game because in the 84th minute, Andrea Shavin got an elbow in the face from a huge Andorran defender. So he turned around and just uh, bashed him in the shins and got sent off. Pfft, game's gone. 
Greece arrive in Salzburg with the same game plan from four years ago, only now it has very different results. They are well beaten by Sweden. But the Swedes come unstuck in the next game. Spain are in their groove and score late to beat them 2-1. But what is their groove? What are they doing on the pitch that's catching people out? Tiki Taka is a term that comes from earlier in the 20th century. Tiki Taka? Tiki Taka basically means that uh, for every pass there is a tiki, for every pass back there is a taka. So Tiki Taka is uh, a sequence of passes just to dismantle the opponent. Unfortunately, these two words have been used uh, in a bad way, just to be critical of a team that only has the possession. But the Spanish Tiki Taka was a positive one, and it started manifesting itself in the European qualifier uh, with a great game in Manchester against England, with the goal of Andres Iniesta, Spain played really well in there, and uh, with a victory to the uh, against the Denmark team in 2007, that pretty much qualified Spain for the tournament. So it was a positive tiki-taka, the passes, the passes, the passes to dismantle the opponent. Russia peel themselves off the map and pick up their own victory against Greece. And they look good in doing so. Russia went into the Greece game having to win, having to win against a team uh, that was, you know, renowned for still being a very strong defensive side. And you know what? They tore them to pieces. The only goal came when Simak uh, chased a, a long ball down the byline and hooked it over uh, himself and the goalkeeper for Zerianov to tap it into the empty net. But Russia really dominated, should have won by more. Spain go through to the knockout stages when their reserve side just about beats the Greeks, sending them home without a point. And so we come to a straight fight between Russia and Sweden for qualification. And serial shin kicker Andrea Shavin is back. So imagine you have a team that already feels like it's flying. And then you put Arshavin there. Arshavin, who was in the form of his life, he was, I think he was 27 at the time. And Russia made a slight switch. They went, they went to 4-1-3-2, if you like. I mean, Arshavin playing very much behind Pavlichenko, but he was like he had a pretty free role and in this lineup, you have uh, Anikov, the right back, sort of coming in in the channel um, on the right hand side. You have Zhirkov maybe more hugging the touchline. It's it's very free flowing. So Russia joins Spain in the quarterfinals, and that's where we're heading after this. Welcome back to the 2008 European Championships, where the knockout round opens with an absolute humdinger: Portugal versus Germany. It went sort of helter-skelter. It was a very, very open game. Uh, Germany scored first. Schweinsteiger and Klose added a second. Then Gomes pulled one back. Then Balak scored again. Then Helga Postiga uh, late on. So, yes, uh, Germany dominated. Germany were the better team. They managed to keep Ronaldo especially very, very quiet. He had a, had a very poor game, not for the first time, not for the last time, coming up against... Philipp Lahm on that side and, and really coming off very much second best. Schweinsteiger, Ballack, and da ist es 3 to 1 for Deutschland. But the wider point was that Germany were beginning to be a bit more interesting, if you will, or a bit more nuanced in midfield with Thomas Hitzberger coming into the side, um, playing as a holding midfielder also playing on the left sometimes, but mostly as a holding midfielder, allowing Michael Balak to be more of a real number 10. Before that, Balak had to be almost everything, a 6, 8, a 10. And you were beginning to see that was just too much for him to do. 
And I think Hitzelsberg coming in allowed Germany and allowed him to be a bit more cuter and a bit more economical uh, with, their, with their energy. So Germany's game is evolving during the Euros. They're still quite susceptible at the defence, but it was, it was seen as another step in the right direction, ultimately. Germany beat Portugal 3-2 and go through. And then comes arguably the most dramatic few minutes in European Championship history. For 118 minutes, Turkey versus Croatia is chronically dreary. The sort of game you wouldn't open the curtains for if it was being played in your back garden. But then, Ivan Klasnitz scores and the Croatians go wild. Manager Slaven Bilic runs onto the pitch with most of the bench to celebrate. It all descended into chaos and, you know, Croatia thought it was pretty much done and Turkey weren't really having it. That was the biggest mistake in my opinion. It's, it's natural and you can't do anything about it. I was back home in a split at the time uh, watching the game on telly and I remember a friend of mine actually pulling the plug out of the TV and it, because we all felt when, the, when Croatia scored that's pretty much it. So we went outside to, to celebrate and when we realized a couple of minutes in nothing was happening we figured out something had to happen. I mean, why is no one leaving the apartment? Why was there no celebrations? And when we, you know, put on the telly once again, we figured out that it was penalties. We, we missed the Turkish goals. So we could not figure out what on earth was going on. We, we couldn't really, you know, work it out what happened. Turkey always believes you have Fatih Terim yelling on the sideline to still believe. And even though every normal person would think, yeah, you can scream at me, but it's impossible at this point. They still managed to get one ball up front and then it's semi-centric and the whole stadium went berserk and one part went really silent. Emre, Karambolano, Cezalır, Semi! Goal! Semi! 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 And that was the point that all the Croatian uh, uh, players went to the ground. Bilic was almost in tears and did everything to, to motivate the, the players for the penalty shootout. But I never had any doubt in my life that they would lose that penalty shootout, Turkey, because, yeah, the Croatians were broken. The euphoria suddenly turned to utter depression. And I don't know how many people really believe that we have what it takes, even then to win the penalty shootout. If you see the names who missed those penalties, it's like crazy, the most talented guys, but they were just heartbroken at that moment. Incredible. As Jonathan O'Brien wrote in Euro Summit, his excellent history of the European Championships, Turkey had played 414 minutes at the tournament and been ahead for just nine of them. But somehow they've found themselves in the semi-finals. Could Russia join them? Well, they'd have to get past the form team of the tournament, the Netherlands, first. But Marco van Basten's decision to rest players may have come at a cost. Sure, it uh, meant they uh, got to recover a little bit ahead of the second round of the tournament. But it also took something away. It kind of knocked them out of their rhythm. You know, those two first games, it made them so confident, those games against France and Italy. 
And to then be on the substitute bench for a game, as a, uh, let's take Van der Vaart or Wesley Snyder, for example, in the game against Romania. Van der Vaart has said in interviews later that it just, in hindsight, wasn't a good idea to rest. It just took their rhythm away. It just, it made it so that the magic disappeared somehow. You got this flying Dutch team and the Russians absolutely destroyed them. And there is no question about it. Don't look at the fact that it went to extra time uh, and that Russia needed really two late goals to put it to bed. There was only one team on the park that day and it wasn't the, the Oranje. And you could almost sense from the bewilderment of the fans that they couldn't really understand what was happening in Basel that night. Again, Russians were outnumbered. Again, it was like an away game. They played the most extraordinary game, I think, I would have seen by the national side since 88. So that's famous semi-final against the Italians. This was kind of the, the re reincarnation of it 20 years later. And they pressed, so they were physically so fit. They ran, not for 90 minutes, they ran for 120. They got behind the Dutch time after time after time after time. Arshavin then provided one of the tournament's more iconic images in his celebration, spreading his hands wide and cocking his head to the camera as if to say, Are you not entertained? Andre, we are entertained. And Russia are 3-1 winners. Next up, it's Spain. The team on the rise against the world champions Italy. Well, surely it's a belter. <laughs> this was... <laughs> Tiki-taka as it sort of desensitises and nauseates and, and, and certainly sends you to, to sleep coming up against an Italy side that certainly wasn't playing the kind of free free-flowing and uh, frizzante football that we have come to accustom uh, them under, under Mancini. Well, uh, the game wasn't the best. Italy was the world champion. Uh, Italy came as a favourite. Uh, we all know that uh, Italians uh, know how to handle this situation and this Spanish team, obviously, didn't have that pedigree yet. Um, personally, I thought that Spain was going to lose this game and many people in Spain thought so. We knew, we were aware that Spain was playing really good football, but Italy had the know-how. After 90 minutes, nothing much has happened. After 120 minutes, still very much the same. And so, we go to penalties. And this is the moment when Spain did the most decisive step in their footballing history. And I think that I'm not exaggerating when I say, because the likes of Tess Fabregas, Fernando Torres, Vicente del Bosque, and many more have said the same thing. This victory against Italy meant a turning point in Spanish football history, because we were basically beating on the penalties the same team that two years ago had beaten France in the World Cup final in the penalties, and Spain hadn't won a penalty shootout since 2002 against the Irish team. So all the odds were in favour of Italy, and Spain broke the odds, they defied the odds, with a goal from Cesc Fabregas in the last penalty of the shootout just to put Spain in the semi-finals. And so the weight of expectation and the eyes of the world on the young aristocrat from Arsenal, Cesc Fabregas, if he scores, Spain are through. He scores! It is Spain who are through to the semi-finals. The world champions are out. Maybe, just maybe, this will be the year for the blood and gold of Spain. But boy, did this age well, because Spain were about to become a team that would make history. So it doesn't really look as bad as it did at the time for, for, for Italy or Roberto Donadoni because uh, uh, certainly uh, La Roja were, were 
one of the greatest teams that we've ever seen in international football. Now, the semi-finals are really nicely balanced in that they both pit teams we sort of expected to be there against teams we definitely didn't. Germany face a significantly depleted Turkey, who only named six outfielders on their bench. But at this point, you have to know Turkey had only, I think, 13 or 14 players in total because everybody was injured or uh, they, uh, they received some red cards and anything. So there was even, I think, uh, a goalkeeping coach was on the bench as a second goalkeeper. Yeah, well, an easy-peasy German win then. This was a very, very even game. And once again, Germany did not really perform convincingly throughout the 90 minutes. They had some really good spells and it's got some beautiful goals. I was lucky enough to be there uh, in Basel. But ultimately, Germany just having a little bit more than, than a very good and very exciting you know, Turkish team that scored goals and managed to get the opener with uh, Boral, but then Schweinsteiger uh, and close it Germany the lead. There's a late equaliser from Semich. It was for a moment like, okay, this this is going until the end. And if, even when you think it's possible, you still doubt yourself, is this really going to happen? But maybe that, that late minute draw goal made it even more heartbreaking what's coming up. But then Lam turns up and with this one of only a handful of goals for Germany uh, settles the tie. And suddenly they're in the final. It wasn't the first time, but it was for sure the last time I've really cried a lot. I'm not the crying type, but I cried a lot because, yeah, it was so heartbreaking. And, and, and it was so because of all the circumstances that it happened, because Turkish players, as I told you, there were not left many anymore. So the stamina was out of out of the the guys were really tired. And the Germans just don't ever seem to be tired. I think there was a sense that Germany hadn't necessarily done all that well because a lot of the games showed progress, but also showed weakness at the same time. So I think people felt strangely disappointed is the wrong word, but I think they were perhaps slightly underwhelmed by the performances of Germany as much as they enjoyed the fact that Germany were in, were in a final and were doing well again after all these terrible years before that, I still remember uh, certainly the team feeling that their performances weren't really rated quite highly enough and that people didn't appreciate sort of their ability to come through the struggle and to get the results even when they weren't playing well. People were perhaps more concentrating on, on the flaws in the system, but they made it a final. Of course, hardly anyone outside of the stadium saw all of that. I was standing in the fan park that night, slurping my officially sanctioned lager, when I noticed the mother and father of all storm clouds approaching. The fan park was evacuated, the heavens opened, and a massive bolt of lightning hit the TV centre and knocked out the international feed for seven long minutes. But it's like they always say, football is just a game of 1.21 gigawatts and at the end of the day, the Germans win. But who would they play? Because as good as Spain clearly are, the Russians are in fine form. And unlike their first meeting in the group stage, they have Arshavin back too. So can the Russians do it again and upset the odds? 
I think against Spain, they went through their peak physically, emotionally, and also, you know, in terms of opposition, uh, what they were up against, they just, they were spent. And I don't think, you know, and nobody could begrudge them the fact that they got pretty much rolled over and turned over in the um, in the semi-final because I think everybody understood that, you know, for a second-tier footballing nation, um, you can't, you know, these performances, you would have needed another Holland base. It was now impossible. And I think that this is overall the best game that Spain has played in their successful cycle. The second half against the Russians was a total dis- dismantlement of a very good Russian team that had knocked out the Dutch. I think that uh, David Silva was fantastic in this game. Xavi and Iniesta command in midfield. Uh, there was another clean sheet for the Spanish team, which is something that cannot go overlooked. In 2008, 2010, 2012, they haven't conceded goals in the knockout stages, and this game was probably the best of all of them. I mean, you look at that Spain team, um, Torres, Villa, I mean, Xavi, Senna, Iniesta, uh, Puyo, Ramos, Casillas. I mean, this is, again, I mean, again, the Russians saw this team in the, in the first match of the tournament. Sometimes certain things are just basically impossible. Beating Holland was probably impossible, but I think you can't do two impossible things in the week, perhaps. And Holland was more than enough for this for this team to be remembered forever, uh, even to this day, as the ultimate fun, world-beating, attacking, beautiful Russian side, which we haven't seen before or since. It was an amazing victory for Spain because the team was qualifying for the first final since 1984. To the final then. And Spain have been the best team throughout the tournament. But would their history of being talented but flaky repeat itself? Germany haven't always been convincing, but you know what they say about Germans and major tournaments. Luis Aragonas, however, has some tricks up his sleeve. He told the players that whenever they had the referee close to them, just call him by his name, because the referee will feel flattered because they also want to be famous. He was telling the players that Michael Ballack wasn't that good. He was telling the players that the finals want to win, was to win them. They hadn't reached that... Uh, that stage of the tournament, just to lose in the final. So basically he was giving them some tricky advice and some very generic advice that the players took very well. Let's not forget that these players were very young. David Silva, 22 years old, Andres Iniesta, 24, Tess Fabregas, 21 years old. They needed not only like a strong pet talk, but also a little bit of a father talk. Spain changed shape after David Villa fails to recover from an injury collected in the semi-final. Fernando Torres is up top on his own in the midfielder pack system that would define them in years to come. But as with many finals, the game itself isn't a classic. Spain did play to entertain the neutrals, I guess. <laughs> it was cagey because Spain were, were doing that Spain thing where they just kept the ball and Germany worked really, really hard to be in a position to counter-attack. They defended quite deep, they were waiting for breaks, they were waiting for things to happen and those things never really happened for them. They considered a goal where there was a bit of a mix-up between Lam and, and Lehmann. And Fernando Torres kind of took advantage of that indecision to score a goal. And they, they did it with, I would say, with the third time know-how that I wasn't expecting. And as the minutes went by, you realized that Spain had the, the ball control and also the knowledge to keep the scoreline like this, and they became champion, champions for the first time in 44 years. It was unbelievable. 
and Germany never really quite recovered from that. They never really managed to get enough of the ball of this Spanish team to do anything with it. I think it was Miroslav Klose who later said, we spent so much time chasing after the ball that by the time we had it, we were too tired to do anything with it. And that's how it stayed. Spain hold on to win their first major trophy since the 1964 European Championships, ending a 44-year spell of disappointment and underachievement. And Luis Aragonés's work was complete. I think that Luis Aragonés knew that uh, he had a tremendous um, treasure in his hand uh, because uh, he knew that this Spanish team could be fantastic, but he thought that his job was done. And uh, I really like the way he left because he left with a little bit of class. I mean, he wasn't just uh, commanding the celebrations. He wasn't just uh, being the first one in front of the photo camera just to be in all the pictures. He gave all the importance and the protagonism to the players and then yeah he pretty much retired from football and uh, he was a very quiet man until his last days to the point that uh, years later about seven eight years later after that he passed away from cancer and uh, good friends of his like for example Xavi Hernandez admitted that they didn't know that Luis Aragonés was sick because he was very private when it came to his personal life and his health. Uno, dos, Spain will be back to defend their title in 2012 when the tournament split between Poland and Ukraine. Join us next time to see how they do. Your experts were Elko Born for the Netherlands, Sasha Gurionov for Russia, Raphael Honigstein for Germany, James Horncastle for Italy, Julien Laram for France, Alvaro Romeo from Spain, Juraj Vedeliak for Croatia and Jordi Yamali for Turkey. The History of the European Championships was an Athletic Media Company production. You can subscribe to The Athletic and listen to the rest of the series ad-free by using the promo code theathletic.com forward slash history. The History of the European Championships was written and presented by me, Ian McIntosh, and produced by Abby Patterson. The Athletic.